Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the maiden voyage of Pressbox Banter. I am James Hilchin of StadiumJourney.com. And for our first guest, we have the director of broadcasting and the voice of the Iowa Cubs, Mr. Alex Cohen. Alex, thanks for hopping on. James, thanks for having me. The maiden voyage of, uh, what was that again? Press box banter. I love that. It isn't what I wanted, but every single podcast name on the planet is already taken. I like it. I think it's got a nice ring to it. I'm proud to be on the maiden voyage of baseball broadcast banter, press box banter, whatever it is. Yes, yes, press box. Press box banter. No, I I like that. It's got a good ring to it. All right. Tremendous. All right. Well, let's get – so, full disclosure, I've been trying to talk to you for a while. We've had a pandemic. We had preseason Zoom meetings with the team. We had Mother's Day. So, it's about time we finally get going on this. So – Fast forward Alex Cohen's life in 40 years. You're sitting on the porch with your grandkids. 40? I hope I'm alive in 40 years. Well, let's go, let's go with that. Okay. You're sitting on the porch with your grandkids, and they say, Grandpa, explain 2020 to me. How do you adventure that? Um, I would say that, well, I would have difficulty explaining it to you guys, so you should read a book. Reading is fundamental. No, but I would I would say that, you know, there was just the world shut down. I mean, from March 12, 2020 to about February 15, 2021, um, it went from everything being normal and people going out to bars and going to sporting events and spring training in full swing in Arizona and Florida to um, basically every major metropolitan city being a ghost town um, and all the city infrastructure when it came to business and commerce shutting down, people getting sick, people dying, people going out of business, people losing jobs. And in the industry that I'm hopefully working in, in that time, just explaining to them that, you know, it caused all of minor league baseball to shut down. Um, It caused 40 teams to basically fall by the wayside and go into prospect ball and American Association ball. And a lot of grandpa's friends uh, were, were forced out of the business because of that. Uh, but we uh, inevitably survived and working for an organization like the Iowa Cubs, um, they gave us the structure and, and the comfort and the safety to be able to go through you know, this pandemic and not have to worry about anything else than just staying healthy and keeping our family and friends healthy and safe. We didn't have to worry about furloughs. We didn't have to worry about layoffs. We didn't have to worry about getting fired and searching for other jobs and collecting unemployment and, and stimulus checks and stuff like that. So. Um, just for me personally, aside from getting COVID myself and having my own you know, individual experience of that from a health perspective, uh, you know, I was one of the lucky ones and, you know, Tessa was one of the lucky ones and all of our family and friends were part of the lucky ones, but there's a lot of people who we knew and we know, um, that were directly affected by it. And hopefully they'll never have to be affected by that either. Right. And you got it relatively early and... I got it not long after you. And other my wife, text messages, yeah. Other than my wife, you were the first person that knew I had it because I'm like, holy crap, what just, uh, yeah. what, what's going on here? So, yeah, we were going through that. So, we're back after 600 and some days yeah. of not doing baseball. This is the second home stand of the season. Um, what's changed for you in 2021 as far as, have your duties changed at all as far as, COVID related? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit. So, you know, before in 2019, the way that our department was was set out, that I, I was the broadcaster. I mean, I still am. 
Uh, and when the team is on the road, I took more of a presence in media relations roles just because I was the main liaison between the staff and the players on the road because nobody else travels. Um, and Shelby you know, Cravens, who's now with the Colorado Rockies, basically took care of everything at home, whether it was roster moves, media relations stuff, press releases, community appearance, player appearances. I mean, she was a five-tool player when it came to that. I mean, she covered everything. Uh, you know, Shelby left right before the 2021 season started. Uh, and Colin Connolly's here, and he, he does a tremendous job. But it, it's just difficult for Colin because there's only a certain amount of people who can have clubhouse access now in 2019. Anybody and their mother could have access as long as they were an Iowa Cubs employee or had a press pass. Now they have a certain number on that, and the Cubs, they have you know, a lot of team personnel here, whether it's two athletic trainers, two development coaches, then players, then rehab guys, and I'm the only Tier 1 slash Tier 2 employee from the Iowa Cubs allowed to go in the clubhouse. So that really hinders what Colin can do, and I'm going to give Colin a lot of credit on here. He's doing the best job possible for somebody who has this limited amount of, of presence physically, that then you can have, and I mean, he's doing a great job on the phone and organizing everything and doing game notes and getting all the correct information. So credit to him and Sheila Abbott, part of the media relations department for the Iowa Cubs. They're doing great, but yeah, I'm going down there 9.30 in the morning on a day game and 3.30 p.m. Uh, for an evening game, and something that Shelby would normally do, get the roster moves, make sure that we're all, like, you know, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and make sure everything is hook, line, and sinker. I'm doing that now when it normally in a non-COVID year when everyone has like the ultimate amount of, you know, ability to do their job, Colin would be doing that. Colin would be going out and getting the roster moves. Colin would be going down, you know, orchestrating the, the roster press releases and, you know, game notes, getting the lineup. But now I'm having to do that, which is something that I did in A-ball, so I'm used to it. But doing it at the AAA level when guys are going up and down from the big leagues, um, especially with the Cubs, they've had a lot of injuries over the last two weeks. It's made for a more busy time. Uh, those are how my duties have changed. My, my mindset has certainly changed too. Um, I have to say, like I've had, a, I have a greater appreciation for calling games this year. Once it's it's taken away from you in 2020, you know, fast forward or, or I rewind a year ago. You know, I'm calling games on Facebook Live. You know, video game simulations yeah, right, uh, of Iowa Cubs baseball and. Now being able to call games live and go on the road with the team, like I am never going to complain about a rain delay. I am never going to complain about a four-hour game again. And I just go back to 2019 when I was like, oh, I'm tired. Oh, it's game seven of an eight-game road trip. Well, who cares? Like now we're able to call baseball. Fans are able to go outside and, and watch baseball games and drink beer and cheer and watch fireworks. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a two-hour rain delay or a four-hour game. We're finally able to do what we're supposed to be doing, you officially scoring games, me calling those games. And that was taken away from us last year. So I think that perspective, I'm not going to say it was needed because 2020 was not needed for anybody, right. but it does shed some different light. One of the things new in 2021, which – may or may not have happened in 2020, which is pretty cool, actually, is that there's some games on Marquee. Mm -hmm. So with being Cubs Network, I think it's really cool, especially if this expands to maybe Tennessee and the others. Yeah. You know. So that's it's a great thing. Um, you're in a unique position now. You're broadcasting radio. You're simulcast on TV. Yeah. You're basically serving two masters at this point. Sure. How do you balance... Calling radio and TV simultaneously. It's a work in progress. I mean, so I, I broadcasted some baseball internationally, 
and the majority of that was a TV broadcast with a radio simulcast. So it was kind of flip-flop. Like what I'm calling right now is more of a radio broadcast with a TV simulcast. Not intentionally by any means, but um, this was just like a webcast and was picked up by some radio affiliates. So I've had some experience in that. But when it comes down to it, I've called 1,500 radio baseball games. And TV baseball games, I've called 15. So when you get into, you know, Calling baseball from a nuts and bolts standpoint, I'm so ingrained with painting the picture and being the eyes and the ears. When in television, all you have to be is the ears. Right. So just, I'm trying to fix one thing every game, like cut down on my words or cut down on my descriptions or just let the game breathe one game. Like, yeah, you know, I remember listening or watching my first two marquee games and I was calling it like a radio game. Like it was very descriptive and I was putting in a lot of details and painting the picture. Well, guess what? The fans on marquee, the majority of the fans who are watching, they don't need that. They have eyes. They work. So just cutting down on the work, saying, you know, it, infielders are playing it at the corners. That ball hooked down the left field line, takes two bounces you know, off the left field wall. They could see that. So instead of those words saying, line drive down the left field line, it hits the base of the wall, it will be extra bases. So it's basically the same thing, but they see the two bounces. They see that it's the story where it lies within. So um, just trying to figure out like that balance that you still have to keep the radio audience engaged and let them understand and know what's going on, but also not being too much for a TV broadcast and giving Marquee what they want to. So it's definitely a work in progress. And then also doing those games solo. I mean, the last couple of years I've been able to have Dean Ellis on the call, mm-hmm. and Dean is taking some family time right now, and deservingly so. I mean, he's got a lot of grandkids, a great family, and after a pandemic, he deserves to see him. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster in my eyes. He's been here for you know, 30 years before I was here. He gets to do what he wants when he wants to do that, and I respect it. But um, definitely calling the game solo has been a change, and it's something that I think will be better in Game 2 than it will be in Game 1, and be better in Game 3 than it is in Game 2, and Game 4 than it would be in Game 3, and so on. It's just a work in progress. Having fun doing it? Having a blast. I mean, I'm having a blast calling games, but, I mean, it's just really cool. Like, I have cousins and I have family who live in Chicago, and they're sending me screenshots and text messages like, oh, I see you on the on, on television. I'm like, I know. I'm here. This Great. is me. Um, no, it's been awesome. Um, it, just from an exposure standpoint, you know, we have we have a trivia contest every game, right? On, on the radio, you have five, ten people who, who comment and guess, and, and you give away tickets for when the game's on Marquee Network, it is four times that in the first minute that you ask the question. You just see the collaborative, like, interest in the Iowa Cubs just yeah, with the regional sports network. I mean, you get people listening in and watching from Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, Wisconsin. I mean, it is just so in-depth. Like, it's it's a blast. I love it. So, you... Your resume is pretty unique, actually. You've done not linear. No, you've done a lot of cool stuff. Um, I saw you. I did not know you were doing this in 2019. Mm -hmm. I turned on the TV, and you're standing in the Tokyo Dome. Yep, which made me jealous. As I'll get out. By the way, (laughs) Um, so you've, in addition to you know, you kind of worked your way up in minor league baseball. Um, You've also done games in Taiwan, Colombia, Japan. And you did a summer fall fall in summer Australia. Yeah. Um, what was what's the Australian league like? So 
The Australian Baseball League in 2014 when I was out there was probably anywhere between the 10th to 15th most popular sport <laughs> in Australia. Um, so going out there and broadcasting my first game, I remember it's like, oh, it's a 6-4-3 double play and that ends the inning. And I get a comment, what's a 6-4-3 double play? <laughs> and then you're just, oh, you get like that oh crap moment. It's like baseball, people don't really know that much out here. I mean, they get it. Um, they get the home runs, the runs scored. I mean, they know that it's not cricket, um, but they don't really know the nuances of it. So breaking down baseball in its most simplest form, I think really helped me. It, it helped me find that common denominator of fan that it's not just the baseball fanatic like you are or I am. You know, there are other people that consume the sport that just don't know that much about it. So uh, going out there in Australia, I, I, I figured out how to break baseball down a little bit simpler, a little bit easier to those who might not understand, and I really think that helped my radio career uh, when I broke back into minor league baseball when I came back from Australia. That being said, from a life experience, man, it was just awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Uh, you know, broadcasting games in Melbourne for the Melbourne Aces. Um, the year before Ronald Acuna was there, I wish I went oh. out in 2015. I was out there in 2014. My, my team was so decent. Uh, Adam Engel was my center fielder, who's now on the White Sox. Dylan Cousins, who broke in with the Phillies, mm -hmm. uh, was our right fielder. He, like, nearly broke the, the league record for home runs. Kellen Deglin, uh, who's in AAA for... Uh, the Yankees did break the league home run for a uh, league record for home runs. So that was pretty cool. But um, just an awesome experience out there. I hate the cold, so being able to experience ninety-five degree temperatures out there in the summer, and when it was twenty-five degrees out here, I definitely enjoyed missing out on that part and being there during the summer. And just traveling around, like my family came out for three weeks, and my parents essentially had like their retirement trip before their retirement mm -hmm. so they came out i met them in sydney they came up to melbourne for new year's and then they went to like cairns and um i went backpacking on the great ocean road i met some really cool people out there i actually worked uh for a sports talk radio station out there called 1116 SEN, and which is crazy about australia is they don't really know that much baseball so they wanted me to go on there and break it down to them but they love and i mean love american football and they love the nba love it so they were just like, hey, you want to come on and talk about the NFL? And James, you know me. like I'm a, I'm a big NFL sure. fan. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll gladly go on there. And 1116 SEN in Australia is like WFAN in New York. Oh, wow. I mean, it's huge. So I'm going on there the wee hours of the morning and talking NFL football and uh, just with the time change, talking about fantasy football. And then when I came back to the States, it was 2015. And at that point, the Warriors were playing the Cavs in the NBA Finals, and it was the first time two Australian-born players were playing against each other in the NBA Finals. It was Andrew Bogut for the Warriors and Matthew Dellavedova for the Cavs. And I was back in the States at that point, and I was broadcasting in Rookie Ball, which was starting you know, three weeks later. So I email 1116SC, and I'm like, hey, like I'm in California. Do you want me to cover the game for you guys? And they're like, yeah. So I got a credential for Game 1 and Game 2 of the nice. 2015 NBA Finals. And I'm sitting in the press box next to Rihanna, and I'm writing a game recap, and I'm interviewing Andrew Bogut one-on-one. So just it wasn't just baseball out there. It was making connections in the world of sports and just from a pure life experience. It was incredible. That's awesome. You started out with Lehigh Valley as an intern. Yeah. If, when... Is radio what you wanted to do? Did you want to do TV? Did you definitely not have any idea? Definitely didn't there? want to do TV. No TV. Definitely okay. didn't want to do TV. So I, I mean, I would have, but I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia listening to Harry Callis. Okay, like yep. 
me consuming baseball was like sitting outside in our backyard or when I was at summer camp, we would have like this, this radio or boom box and we would just listen to Harry Cows. And I, w- I would watch some games, but the majority, like I would listen. So I always thought like, that's how baseball should be. Um, and then in high school, my friends and I started the sports broadcasting club and it's actually really cool. It's it was three of us, and all three of us are still in the industry. My friend Josh Getzoff is the pre and post game show host, and now uh, going to be the play by play broadcaster full time for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, nice. He's been doing all the, the road games for them um, with Mike Lang Hall of Fame broadcaster, not doing road games anymore. And then Stephen Watson, who's a television news anchor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So all three of us are still in it, and we were broadcasting everything: hockey, field hockey, lacrosse, softball, soccer, football. Um, the only sport that I didn't do was baseball because I played in high school. But I knew, you know, after high school, after not getting any college baseball offers, the playing career was going to end and the broadcasting career was going to start. Went to Indiana University, did student radio. I called baseball, called football, called basketball. Um, and being from the Philadelphia area, you know, my mom actually knew somebody in the front office with Lehigh Valley. And they're like, hey, you're not going to get paid for this internship, but you can go up there during every home game and be a you know, de facto media relations intern, even though you don't get paid for it. So I went up every home game uh, for two years and did anything from, you know, get the press box uh, or get the broadcasters a different feed because the press box food stunk. So I remember the first day I went up there, uh, their broadcaster, John Schaefer, one of my good friends, picky eater. And I think they had like Chinese food in the press box and they usually had pretty good food, but that didn't look great. So he's like, hey, can you get me two chicken sandwiches from the press box? And that was my first job in minor league baseball. First day getting John Schaefer two chicken sandwiches from the press box with no condiments on it, just plain chicken breast. So, you know, went from doing that to pitch charts to teaching them how to use social media because it was 2009 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more like pre-post-game shows, pre-post-game interviews. And then my second year there, it was less about the chicken sandwiches and more about the pre- and post-game shows. And I actually, the first minor league baseball game I ever called was at the AAA level because their other broadcaster, Matt Province, who was a director of broadcasting at the time, uh, his wife, they had their second child. So I went on a road trip with John to Rochester and uh, and called my first two minor league baseball games ever with John Schaefer, AAA, uh, Lehigh Valley Iron Picks against the Rochester Red Wings. So um, that was fun. It was great to, to break in, but, you know, after uh, – after I graduated college, you know, you could, can't just be an unpaid intern forever. So I right, yeah. uh, went the independent league route, broadcast the games for the Gateway Grizzlies, mm-hmm. and then two years for the Huntsville Stars, and then started my linear path, or non-linear path. Nice. Yeah. Nice. What, um, you, yeah, you've been all over the country, really. Yeah. Um, all the time zones. Idaho Falls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bowling Green. I was in California. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give I'll give you the synopsis. So right. after after Lehigh Valley, I was in Gateway. So the Gateway Grizzlies Frontier League, just outside of St. Louis, uh, for a summer. And then I took the job with the Huntsville Stars AA affiliate for the Brewers for two years. Uh, the fall after my second year, you know, they let me know that the team was getting sold, and they were just like, you know you're going to have to pay for radio time. And I'm just like, I, I'm 24 years old. I don't have the money to pay for radio time. And I'm not going to sell radio time for a team that's leaving in five months. So they told me that in December. And uh, and at that point, I was 25. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm listening back to my audio. And I think I'm doing some good things. But I'm also developing bad habits. So I took a job as the broadcast and media relations intern for the Oakland Athletics. And you know me. I like to talk. 
Uh, for a summer, I basically had to shut the heck up and listen and, and mm-hmm. see how the pros did it. And minor league baseball are the pros, but the big leagues. See how Ken Korak, who should be a four-frick award-winning Hall of Fame broadcaster, Vince Catronio, who was here in Iowa, has been in the big leagues for 30 years. Just seeing how they prepared and how they went about their business, what information they use, how they use dead air, how they use pregame, who they talk to, who they talk to during dinner, how the conversations with scouts, how they use them on air. Just being a sponge with that um, and working every home game. And then I had like a couple home games off just because of the hour limit, doing mock broadcasts and then sending it to them being like, listen, tell me how I suck. And they would tell me. And they would tell me that I, what I would do good. And they would tell me what I did bad. And then I would fix it. So it was really learning from the best and like taking a step back and shutting up and having the opportunity to do that at 25 when most people are just like grinding for that single A or double A or rookie ball job. I was lucky. I mean, I don't think without that year I'd be where I am because, you know, I was developing bad habits, good habits and bad habits mm-hmm. when you do 280 games solo at age 23 or 24 with nobody but your parents giving you a critique. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I learned a lot, and then when I was in California, obviously, like, I met my girlfriend, Tessa, and we're still together, and she moved here, and, you know, without that year, my, my life changes drastically. Like, I wouldn't take that year back for anything. If I would do it all over again, I would be there. I mean, not even a question. Um, but you know, when I was out in California, I was talking to my buddy, Craig Durham, who I knew in the Southern League. I was a broadcaster for Huntsville. He was a broadcaster for Mobile. Instead of him doing something like I did. He went out to Australia. He broadcast the games for the Melbourne Aces when I went out to California and worked for the Athletics. So he was out there. He called the ABL. He met a girl out there. They were having a great time. He was working for the ABL League office. He calls me in August of 2014, and it's just like, hey, like, and I would catch up from every now and then. He's like, I'm having the best time ever. The ABL was great, but I'm, I'm going back. Like, I met this girl here. She wants to go back to Canada. I want to go back to Canada. Like, do you have any interest in taking my place in Melbourne? And it took me about three seconds to say, how do I do it? How do I do it? And he's like, just stand by. Uh, Two days later, I had a phone call with them. Three days later, I was applying for my visa. Two weeks later, I got it. And two weeks later, I was on a plane. So I drove back, you know, from California to where I was from in Philadelphia. My car broke down in Clyde, Texas, um, in a Whataburger parking lot. I had to sleep in the back of my trunk. Um, this was three days before my flight to Australia, by the way. So I had to leave my car in Clyde, Texas. I packed all my stuff up in a rental car, drove back home, uh, flew out the next day, and then I was out in Australia. So uh, that's how it kind of materialized through a friend. Um, and going out there to Australia and taking what I learned in Oakland and really just taking it game by game in Australia and working on one thing each game just really helped me. And I just felt like I was getting more crisp and more sound and more comfortable with every game that I was able to do out there, all 27 of them. Um, the only difficult part of being out in Australia is applying for jobs back in the States just because of the time difference. So you know, I'm applying for jobs. Uh, I'm telling you I'm getting back in February, March, and you know most jobs for minor league baseball broadcasters start around then. So I was contacting uh, rookie league teams that start in June, have a little bit more mm-hmm. of a buffer when it comes to being out there and getting back and getting my life in order and was able to get a job with the Idaho Falls Chuckers, rookie league affiliate of the Kansas City Royals. Never been to that part of the country in my life. I mean, the only parks I've been to that point were baseball parks, not Yellowstone. Um, uh-huh. But being able to drive from, you know, flying back from Australia and driving from Pennsylvania to Idaho was just, oh, it was picturesque. It was really cool. 
uh, driving through Wyoming for the first time, staying in Utah, you know, doing the drive from Salt Lake City through Ogden, uh, up through Pocatello to Idaho Falls. Yeah. It's just so neat. Um, and the people up there were incredible. Now, I hold a soft spot in my heart for Idaho Falls just because they were one of the 40 teams that were cut off through minor league baseball's, you know, contraction. And, I mean, if I if I had a direct line to Rob Manfred, I would say, man, just keep keep cities like that. I mean, July 4th in Idaho Falls, the stadium seats 5,500. There's 5,501 people there. It yeah. is completely packed. Uh, just an incredible atmosphere. And then everybody from the stadium walks downtown after the game and watches the fireworks show. It's like everything you would think the Sandlot is, that's what... Idaho Falls was as a community and how much they enjoyed baseball. It felt like American Legion on steroids, but in the best way possible. It's like steroids bringing back the game of baseball in 1998. That's what it did for me, not steroids, but going to Idaho Falls. It brought back my love for baseball and being back in like the grind of minor league baseball, bus trips, through the night bus rides, mm-hmm. everything like that. So um, I loved it. And, you know, just busing through Montana and you know, stopping in cities like Helena and Missoula. It, Missoula has the best barbecue place I've ever been to. It's called Notorious P.I.G. Nice. Notorious nice. P.I.G. I will never forget that place. But, I mean, just going out there, I worked with a guy by the name of John Balgini, who had been, he's like an Idaho Falls broadcast legend. Um, been there for 30 years. You know, worked with Jim Garshow at the broadcast booth, his name after him, and you know, John was like my dad. I mean, he was a guy who, who calls great games, got that deep, like, whiskey and cigarette smoke voice, mm-hmm. what you expect out of an older broadcaster. But, you know, he he whipped me into shape. He was a guy that we worked really well together. But, you know, I was still 26, and I was trying to have fun. He's like, don't text while you're broadcasting, and get, put your phone away and focus. I mean, and he... He was a really big impact on my broadcast career. So, you know, just taking that and then you just kind of start the whole minor league baseball circle again. You know, one year in in Idaho, we went to the Pioneer League Championship and we lost on my birthday in Missoula, September 15th. It was 34 degrees. It was freezing. Uh, we had a power outage during the final game in the eighth <laughs> inning. And, you know, the, there was a certain farm director for a team who was drinking a whiskey hot chocolate in my booth. Like, it was, it was awesome. But... You know, after that, it's just kind of like, all right, well, it's time to time to move back up. So I uh, had a I got a job with the Bowling Green Hot Rods for two years, and then parlayed that into a job here. So yeah, my time in Australia, my time in Oakland, just kind of shifted everything and, and put things into perspective for me. And without those experiences, I'm not here right now. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about contraction. I mean, you know. In Iowa, you've got Clinton, you've got Burlington, mm-hmm. you've got Quad Cities, you got Cedar Rapids. I love going to those ballparks, mm-hmm. especially, unfortunately, Burlington and Clinton, which are no longer affiliated teams. Mm-hmm. They're just old-time stadiums that cater to baseball fans. There's no fancy anything. It's and not. It's it, gone. I, it, I just it, That portion of baseball, I think, is gone now. And it's. I'm not sure how that grows the game. But maybe you have a different view of it than I do. No, I actually have the same view of it as you do. And the reason that I understand why they did it is because those facilities you've been to before, they're nice to watch a game. Uh, but when it comes to player development and giving guys the best chance to go from level to level and make it up to the big leagues, there were some serious needs for upgrades in certain ballparks that the ownership group just wasn't financially able to do. 
So from a player development standpoint and Major League Baseball's investment standpoint, taking over the financial responsibility and saying, if you're not going to give these kids, players, the best chance of making it to the big leagues, then you serve no purpose. I mean, that, and I don't agree with that, but I see what they're sure. saying. Um, but as somebody who has immersed themselves in the community of those places, has gone to Idaho Falls, and have seen 5,000 people come for every Friday game and walk down to the ballpark or walk to downtown from the ballpark and experience July 4th, baseball is just such a, an important fabric part of the community and seeing that taken away from a minor league baseball perspective is really difficult for me. It's something that hurts me deeply. Um, but from a financial standpoint and a player development standpoint, like you have to see both sides to every argument. And I see that part of you know the whole minor league baseball experience where the number one part to them is making sure the players have the best opportunity to make the big leagues. And it's difficult to do that at Clinton because, you know, the Seattle Mariners were what, the Clinton Lumberkings single A, or Clinton mm -hmm. Lumberkings were the Mariners single right. A affiliate. Well, they wouldn't send their top prospects to Clinton because, you know, it's not the best facilities. They weren't putting a lot of money into it. They were completely bypassing that level in which they're then putting pitchers in the California League and they're getting rocked. So it... it it really does have an impact when it comes to player development, which I understand why Rob Manfred and company would want to have better facilities for those players. And if the owners or the ownership is not able to pay for those, then you have to think of other options. So I get it. I understand. I'm not happy about it. Yeah. And, I, and I've been to Burlington. I love it. I think Burlington is what single-A baseball is supposed to be like. Yep. You, you go there, you have the, you know, the woods and the trees and the background and the highway down the left field line and, and the bleacher seats, decent press box, really close to the field. It, it just feels like, as I said, an American Legion team on steroids, which is fun. And like American, American Legion baseball is pure and the fans are pure and the love for the game is pure. And I thought that's what what Burlington was. I, I have an interesting take on Clinton. Um, I just didn't have a great experience there. We had awful weather. I've only been there once. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I know Ted over there, and, you know, they did a great job. I knew some of the broadcasters, and they were great people. So, uh, But Burlington specifically, I loved. I loved going there. I loved everything from the team hotel to walking from the team hotel to the ballpark to a Friday night game there to just the layout of the stadium. I mean, it's a shame that, they're not an affiliated team anymore because that's a town that loves their baseball and that's a stadium that definitely plays to having you know fun, good environment for baseball there. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if Major League Baseball had invested in fixing some of that. Maybe, you know, maybe that helps the fandom that's not so pleased with things like blackouts and Correct. so forth. But if you know those who are in the upper levels of Major League Baseball, they have no interest in giving away money. They have interest in making money. Sure. And the margin to do that at the single-A level, I mean, even the best single-A teams, even the best triple-A teams, I mean, there are, when it comes to making money over the course of a season, there's not many of them. That that have a positive financial impact. I mean, the Idaho the the Iowa Cubs are I mean, I haven't looked at the books, but they're one of the few. That right, just, right, yeah. And that comes from years and years of being as part of a community, um, having a great ownership group, and just having, you know, continuity with the city. Um, and not every minor league baseball team has that. Does baseball have a fan problem? Major league baseball? I mean, we're trying to speed up the game. Well, they're not doing that. Right. 
and still, even with the extra inning rule and all the rules that they're putting in place, like the average game is what is I think it's within like sixty seconds that it was in like two thousand eighteen. So that's not changing. Um, you still got the four hour extravaganza on do, Sunday night with the Yankees and the Red you, Sox. You too. do, you do. Um, I think that's an incomplete grade right now, just because we won't know if they have a fan problem until COVID ends, until we can see what happens with baseball when 100% crowds are letting it all 30 baseball stadiums. So I think in 2018, yeah, there probably was. Um, but I would like to see if there's a resurgence just based on what I was saying. Fans don't know what you have until it's gone. And not going to games in 2020 and not having fans in the stands and having baseball taken away from you, you know, maybe that'll cause people and fans to be like, you know what, let's go to a game in the summer. You know, let's... Let's go travel for a series in San Diego where it's 74 degrees and sunny every damn day, pardon my language, because yep. it is. So ask me that question in 2022 or 2023 when we're hopefully back to normal, 100% fans without masks, and, and seeing if you know, fans are packing it to the gills at 35,000 people per game or if it's you know fans are losing interest the youth interest is dwindling college baseball is dwindling the prospect league isn't doing well minor league baseball tends to shrinking if that's the case in a year or two from now we can have that conversation fair enough all right you're a philly guy uh you listen to harry callis as a kid as a kid i, I lived, grew up in albuquerque okay listening to the dukes Having my mom yell at me every night because yeah. I didn't go to bed, especially when the team was out in Hawaii and the game didn't start till eleven o'clock. At yeah. Um, where do you see radio going? We have social media. We have we have streaming. Is and we have some teams now that simulcast other teams yeah. or have done away with radio. Is that a problem going forward for baseball? Um, I think at the bigger levels now. Um, I don't think that you're going to see many big league teams. I mean, the Oakland Athletics were the only team that went to, like, webcasting um, because they couldn't finalize a radio deal in 2020. Now they're back on the radio. When you get into those larger markets, I mean, there's still enough of a demand in the old school fan where you'll be able to broadcast those games on the radio and you'll get good advertisements for it. Um, with Major League Baseball, I don't think that'll be a problem. With Minor League Baseball, it's tough. It's tough yeah. because, I mean, it's you see all the webcasts and the tune-in radio and just going to the website and stream guys. It's just so easy. And these minor league baseball teams that are already strapped for cash, they don't have to pay a dime for it. I mean, they have to pay a dime for the equipment, but they already have that. All you need is a USB port to your computer and then just run it through your own computer. Right. So I don't think it helps the game by any means, but um, it allows these minor league baseball teams to save some of the cash and – have somebody call the games, even though that's the case. There are some teams that are not doing broadcasts this year just because of COVID, um, which I understand, but it makes me very upset because they all they need to do is just set up a link for free and have a mixer, which you already have, plug it into your computer, and you're broadcasting the games. But um, I think in minor league baseball, you'll see more and more teams shifting to internet-only broadcasts. Um, I mean, you saw the Memphis Redbirds do it in 2019 just because you're a minor league organization in a big league city, the prices are inflated. Uh, but we fortunately have a really good relationship here in Des Moines with AM 940. Um, I hope that we don't go internet only. I mean, the fact of the matter is a broadcast is a broadcast. So if our ownership group wants to go to internet only, like you're still doing nine innings of games, you still have the same equipment, it's fine. 
But um, baseball is special on the radio. That's what I grew up with. And I'm not as much of a baseball purist as I thought I was. Like, I love bat flipping. I don't want the, I, I want the universal DH. I don't want pitchers ever touching a bat again. I don't. But when it comes to baseball on the radio, I still consider myself a purist. And there is nothing better to me than after this season ends in Iowa, me going back to, you know, my parents have a, have a house in New Jersey right on the beach. And sitting, you know, on the rooftop deck with my dad with a radio and listening to September baseball. There's mm-hmm. nothing better than that. And just the, the crisp sound waves of a radio broadcast are, are different than an internet-related broadcast. So, I mean, I'm sure we can get the broadcast on our phones upstairs, even if we're internet only. But there's just something special with radio and that signal and that you know, little s- in the in the end of the broadcast. It's... Uh, I I would hate to see radio fall by the wayside. I think it will in the minor leagues. I don't think it's going anywhere in the big leagues. All right. You've called, uh, how many games have you called? I think 1,500. Okay, 1,500. What is the coolest thing you ever called? Not a promotion. I mean, you, you brought it up. Tokyo Dome. Okay. Without a doubt. So... I was in, in 2019, I was in Taiwan and Japan um, calling games for the Premier 12. So the Premier 12 started in 2015. Um, it's brought to you by the WBSC. It's international baseball. Um, essentially, the Premier 12 of 2015 was helping draw up seating for the World Baseball Classic. And the 2019 Premier 12 was the preliminary event to what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics baseball coming back. And it is. It's just for the 2021 Olympics because baseball is coming back. Um, but I, I got those connections through the people who I knew in Australia and I called the preliminary round. There were three of them, one in Guadalajara, Mexico, one in Seoul, South Korea, and one in Taichung, Taiwan. And I went to the one in Taichung, Taiwan, uh, which is actually really cool for me because my girlfriend, Tessa, her family, grandparents, aunts and uncles all live in Taichung, don't speak any English. They pick me up from the airport They take me out to dinner. I can't talk with them, so I'm speaking with hand signals and everything. Nice. Because they yeah. don't, I don't speak English, I don't speak Taiwanese or Mandarin, and they don't speak English. But just being able to meet them and you know go to a city like that where nobody speaks English, get my way around, um, go to a CPBL environment, and it's just so cool. Everyone's standing up, coordinated chants. So um, doing those games in Taiwan was, was was special to me because you know I'm able to you know add in a family value to right. it. And then just going to Japan, and, and you know everybody talks about the Tokyo Dome and what baseball in Japan is like, and you don't really believe it until you see it. And I remember landing, um, and we were flying with, I think we were flying with the Japanese national team because they were out in Taichung. Yeah, they were out in Taichung. They weren't playing in Korea. We were flying with them. And just the hordes of people and media taking pictures of them when you get off the plane for like a Japanese national team, it's crazy. Um, and just doing nine days out in Tokyo and calling games at like both stadiums. And then uh, the Premier 12 final, Korea and Japan, it was uh, a rematch of 2015. You get to the Tokyo Dome and it is 45,000 people standing strong, 45 minutes before the game. Everybody with a choreographed chant for every single player on the team. Nice. And people are standing up for four and a half hours. And I remember doing my on-field pregame hit. It was like a three-minute TV intro with J.P. Morosi of Fox Sports. And I get down there and it's 45 minutes before the game. And I look up. They're counting down like 10, 9. And I look up, and everybody's standing up. And since the Tokyo Dome is just like straight, like incline, 
they're looking down at you. It's like 45,000 people staring at you. And I look at JP, and I'm like, I'm going to pass out. Like, And he's like, count to three, you'll be okay. And I counted to three, I did the pregame hit, and afterwards I kind of just dropped the mic and just did a 360 view of the entire atmosphere, and it was Oh, the hair sticking up in my arms thinking about it. It was incredible. And just calling that game, uh, Japan winning and seeing the celebration on the field and going down. I mean, and when they celebrate, they're chanting for two and a half hours after the game. They don't drink. They don't, they're not rude. They're just chanting. They're happy. They're hugging. I mean, oh, so awesome. It really was. I mean, I will never, ever forget those nine days. But, you know, the, the championship game in particular is really special. The stuff. You kind of mentioned it, but the difference between... I mean, it's kind of cool now because I can watch Japanese baseball every night yeah. on one of the DirecTV channels. And the seats aren't full there yet because of the... Well, they were, and then they actually... Now they're having another outbreak, which, right. which should be interesting for the Olympics. But when they are full, I mean, it is just packed to the gills. Everyone wearing, like, color-coordinated type of stuff, whether they're on home or on the road... Like, when the team is on the road, they wear their road uniform, like, jersey colors. And when they're at home, they wear their home uniform jersey colors. And when they're on the road, they have different chants for different players than when they do when they're at home. And one player has this, you know, long song, and the next player has a song. And every single person knows it. It's just, oh, it's so different. And, I mean, there's no drinking. I mean, they have beers there. Sure. I mean, they'll, they'll drink a beer like they drink a water to hydrate. But you go to a, a baseball game in the United States, you go to Wrigley Field, you sit in the bleachers, it's incredible, but people like to party, mm-hmm. and they like to have a fun time. I mean, you go to you know a Cardinals game at Bush Stadium, and you go out and drink at Ballpark Village for three hours, and then you go in your lab, you're obnoxious, you're inebriated, and it's a great atmosphere. It is not like that at all in Japan. It, yeah, People get into the ballpark two and a half hours, and they have one goal in mind. Screaming their face off in a loud, respectful way, singing their songs. I guess it's three goals in mind, and making sure that their team wins. Yeah, the I saw a video which I thought was really cool. One of the differences between Japanese baseball and American baseball, just from a pageantry standpoint. Yeah. Matt Carasetti, who used to play for the Iowa yeah. Cubs and was a pitcher, cracked a home run, comes around third, touches home plate. A little girl gives him a teddy bear yeah. and I think some flowers or something. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, we need something like that here. That'd be awesome. But uh, Or have like a home run derby to end extra innings or something like that. So Yeah, it's great. I, I definitely want to get I, out there and I mean, see one, some games one, once this Once you could travel overseas, I mean, I, I think that traveling in general is great and Australia is awesome. If you want to see baseball in its most pure, unadulterated, fanatic form, you need to go to the Tokyo Dome. Absolutely, yep. Agreed, yeah. Let's look at, um, so you said the coolest thing you ever called on the field By was far. Tokyo Dome. By what far. is, and I think I know what you're going to say here, but let's go with it anyway. What is the coolest on-field promotion you've ever seen? I I think here, just the naturalization side. I, I knew that's where you're going to go with that. I mean, and that's, it, that's totally great. I agree. It's special. I mean, and every year you're like, oh, like, you know, it's just going to be another year. And then you see just the joy of the faces of the people that, you know, they come to this country and all they want to do is be a citizen and to be able to do it here on July 4th or July 6th this year. And, you know, have the judge involved and Mr. Gartner involved and all their families here in the ballpark. It's usually a beautiful day. I mean, it is. 
it is what America feels like to me, or what it should be. Right. It's just, you know, people who, they want to come here, they're allowed here, they're embraced, they're welcome, they're so happy. It's July 4th, everyone's wearing you know, red, white, and blue, and you can smell the hot dogs, you can see the peanuts, I mean, it's... It really is. I mean, it's so special. And there's, you know, you're not spending a lot of money to do it. It's just exactly what, you know, Mr. Gardner had in mind for you, putting forth this ceremony every single year at Principal Park. And every year it does not disappoint. It's awesome. I love it. And 2019 when we did it, it's cool because the, the, everybody gets staying out in the press box yeah. or, or out right outside. And I remember talking to the guy, I think it was from Ghana maybe, but he was a basketball player. Yeah. Like ridiculously tall. I'm 6'4", and he towered over me. And he you were the point guard. He was the, the stretch. Yeah, player, right? and yeah. he was a kid just throwing out the first pitch, and he's like, "I'm really nervous. I've never done this before." And I'm yeah, like, just wing it. It'll be great. It and just, he did. He threw it right over the middle. Looked up here. It was awesome. Um, it's just so yeah, it's much. Such a great thing. It's great. It's it really gives you perspective. Yeah, that that people are just so happy to one be here, but two be uh, initiated into the fabric of our country, and they're so proud, and their families are so proud and as divisive as our country is, you know, whatever side that you're on, just seeing that is, is really pure and special. It's definitely, it's definitely one of the cool things. So growing up, uh, a Philly guy, you were a Philly fan. Yes. Who, who, who's your player growing up? It's a really good question. I was actually asked this the other day. Um, so I was born in 1988. Um, my first baseball game, or one of my first baseball games I went to, was during the 90, 1993 World Series run. It's one of my first memories. We were sitting at Veterans Stadium, uh, first level, right behind the concourse. Like, the concourse is here, seats are here. Um, and Mickey Morandini hit a foul ball that bounced on the concourse over my head and two rows back. And I was, I guess, four at the time, and I was like, Making a fuss that I didn't get the foul ball. I don't think I was crying, but I remember the last inning break, you know, I went up to go to the bathroom and a guy taps my mom on the shoulder and says, can I, can I talk to him? She's like, sure. And he goes, yo kid, what's your name? I said, my name's Alex. He's like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm four. He's like, four's my favorite number. Here you go. Tosses me the ball. And cool. Later that game, I went down and got it autographed by Mickey Morandini and I still have that ball. So... That was like my first memory. So Mickey Morandini, one of the best names in baseball. Yep. Now Hoosier, you know. Yeah, I'm a Hoosier. Yeah, I went to IU. He was an IU guy. Like he's like the first baseball player that I like idolized because I had his foul ball and he played for the Phillies. Um, but yeah, that era, I mean, Letty Dykstra, John Crock, Darren Dalton. Yeah, those are my guys. Um, but I was four or five years old. Then my Phillies, when I was like eight to ten, when I was really getting into baseball, I mean, they stunk. Um, so I was rooting for Ken Griffey Jr. Like he was my guy. Mm -hmm. Like I would wear, you know, the backwards hat and like my, my grandparents had like the square fence in, in their backyard and I would always try to bring wiffle balls back, you know, over the fence on the backyard and bring like my hand all the way down to the bottom of the fence. Like he does in little big league. Like Ken Griffey Jr. Was my guy. Like he was my guy. Kyle Ripken Jr. Was my guy with the weird stance yeah. on the right side. Um, I'd always used to impersonate like Jeff Bagwell or Gary Sheffield, um, just with cool stances. And then uh, Barry Bonds. I mean, they were just so much fun to watch. Um, I remember the 1996 All-Star Game. It was in Philadelphia. It was at Veterans Stadium. And I was going to day camp at the time. And my grandpa showed up at like 2.30 p.m. And I thought somebody died. I'm like, why are you here? Like, usually when somebody shows up, like, apparently something bad happens, like, you're coming with me. And we went to the home run derby. 
And then he kept nice. me at his house. We went to the All-Star game that day. Like, Hideo Nomo pitched up. We tried to impersonate him. Um, the home run derby, like, Big Mac was in it. Bonds was in it. It was – those were, you know, my guys growing up with them just because, you know, the Phillies sucked. Like, I like Scott Rowland, um, Todd Zeal, Mike Lieberthal. Um, but they were just really bad back then. And then when I was in high school, like – they started getting good. I mean, I always watched every game and listened to every game, but the the Rollins, Utley, Howard, uh, Cole Hamels, you know, mm-hmm. 2007 when they came back from seven and a half games, 17, or 17 games left, seven and a half games down, and, you know, they won the division. They beat the Mets. And then in 2008, I went to game three of the World Series. So that was just like my fanatic era. Um, so those are my Phillies, guys. You're an Eagles guy, too. I'm a bigger Eagle fan than I am a Philly fan. Okay. And I've always been a bigger I mean, the Phillies were like, obviously, it's really tough to say now. Um, so growing up in Philadelphia, I was always a diehard Phillies fan and a diehard Eagles fan. A pretty big Sixers fan and a Fairweather Flyers fan. Okay. Um, I guess yeah, I would say that during the fall, I was a bigger Eagle fan. During the summer, I was a bigger Philly fan. But if you put a gun to my head and said that, you can only pick one team to win a championship the rest of your life from Philadelphia. Who would it be? Definitely the Eagles. Definitely the Eagles. I was in Minneapolis when they won the won the Super Bowl against uh, against the Pats. I was at the game. One of the best nights of my life. Okay, so let's go this route then. Yeah. You, the Eagles are your team. Football seems to be your one sport. Baseball might be one A. Yeah. Did you ever have a desire to call football instead of baseball? <sighs> Did it matter to you? Do you just want to call No, sports? I mean, I, I I knew that I wanted to call baseball because I played baseball. I knew more about it. Um, yeah, it was a game that yeah, my grandpa taught me, and, like, we talked about it, like, thoroughly, like, strategically. Um, and I always felt like I knew baseball. Like, football was like a fish out of water. Like, I undersized, not that athletic. I wasn't – like, I could play football, like, in the backyard, but it was never, like, a strategic – football game to me like I'd always watch it I would always play fantasy football I always rooted and consumed football as a fan baseball was always a lifestyle to me because you know I wanted to, I had aspirations of playing college baseball mm-hmm. until I was uh, a senior in high school and realized that only D3 teams were offering me and I didn't want to do that but baseball was always something that like I knew more about from like the intricacy standpoint and football was more of just like a fanatic experience for me so um no, I, I mean, yeah, if the Philadelphia Eagles call me right now and say, hey, you want to be the play-by-play broadcaster, I'd obviously entertain the conversation. Sure. Um, but no, broadcasting baseball has always been the dream, for sure. Did you go to a lot of different stadiums as a kid? You just went to veterans to see the Phillies? or So I've been to 23 of the 30, like cities. Okay. So, I mean, and that's including, like, I've never been to City Field, but I've been to Shea Stadium. I've never been mm-hmm. to the new Atlanta Stadium, but I've been to Turner Field. Um, when I was younger, it was more like an eastern seaboard thing. Like, you know, my dad loves Camden Yards. Um, Veteran Stadium, Citizens Bank Park are fun, but, like, he loved driving down to Baltimore. My brother lives in Baltimore. So we would just go down and buy $25 tickets on the first baseline at Camden Yards, and he loves it. Uh, loved it. Yeah, my brother went to Emory, so we went to Turner Field a little bit. Um, my grandparents lived in Florida, so we went to the old Marlin Stadium, not the new one. Um, mm-hmm. What was it? Joe Robbie or Pro Player, whatever it was yep. called. Um, yeah, but I think I started going to more stadiums when I was able to drive. Just like that's all that I really wanted to do. 
Um, and then going to all like, you know, working in minor league baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you're in the middle of nowhere, but you know, you go to, I don't know, you go to West Michigan, you go to Great Lakes. You're not that far from Detroit. You know, go to right. Kane County. You're not that far from Wrigley. So just being able to like pair like a day game with a night game or a night game with a day game, like that's always been fun. Um, so yeah, I've been, a, I think it's either 22 or 23 out of the 30 cities. When you're working, how much, especially, I, I know how much you work here. You're always doing something when yeah. you guys are on the road because you have so many duties. Do you ever get a chance to look around the stadium or do you just show up, head to the press box, do your game and start that, working on other That's stuff? a really good question. So early on in my career, um, I just wanted to get to the press box, get my work done, you know, talk on the phone, call my family, call my friends. And over the last three years, what I've tried to do is at the beginning of every series, get to the ballpark like super early. Um, let's say we have like a seven o'clock game. We travel the night before I wake up, I shower, I try to do something active. I'll walk to the ball, ballpark and I try to get there at noon. Normal days I would get there at two. I get there at noon. I get there before anybody from the team does and just walk around the entire seating bowl just to get like the depth of what the stadium means. Like, you know, just see the flight path, see what the alleys look like. If they have a 360 concourse, what type of elements they have in the outfield that you can't really see from the press box. You know, what type of beer selections they have, food items they have. Just like walking around the stadium, do it twice, a half hour. You know, you put your, your iPod on or your phone on, you get your headphones in, and you just kind of get in the zen thing. It's just you, you focus a little bit differently, and you get to know the stadium, a place where it's not that familiar to you. You get your lay of the land. So that's what I've tried to do over the last three years so I can – adequately paint the picture because you're sitting up in the press box on your perch you're 400 feet from dead center field you might not know what's going on out there so if you right. walk around that 360 concourse you can get an idea so whether it's been as a fan or as a broadcaster what are some of your let's do two things what are some of your favorite stadiums and what do you makes a good stadium not necessarily for a broadcaster but for a fan to show up okay so my I can give you my minor league top three stadiums and my big league top three stadiums. I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Nashville Sounds. Interesting. Okay. You, have you been? I've not. All right. So you, now it has a new name. When I was down there, it was first Tennessee Park. Mm -hmm. uh, they used to be in Greer Stadium, which was right. not nice. Historic, but not nice. Uh, but first Tennessee Park is on the south side of Nashville, over the center field wall and the big guitar, you get like the city skyline, which is great. And it is just an awesome place to experience a baseball game because everyone's just having so much fun. It's, you know, families that are down the lines. And then you have people who are like 25, 30, 35 in the bars down the left field line and the right field line just having a ball, drinking slushies, playing Papa Shot, mini golf. Um, it kind of feels like an amusement park, but they're not overdoing it. It's just a raucous, rowdy, fun atmosphere. You have to watch a crowd mic in the seventh inning because people are a little <laughs> overserved. But, no, I mean, it's just a great location. It's downtown Nashville, which is just a fun, vibrant city. Um, and they built that in 2015, so I like that a lot. Fort Wayne Tin Caps uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort, it's amazing. It is Awesome. It is exactly what you want out of a minor league baseball stadium. It is right downtown. It is kind of below the ground, so you're looking up at the stadium. So you're looking, you know, at the, um, yeah, you're you're looking at the skyline. 
they have all these like family friendly booths like in left field and right field and then they have this huge batter's eye and like a premium seating area over the batter's eye so people are like overlooking it and then there's an apartment complex like down the left field line 450 mm -hmm. feet away and they have these outdoor balconies so people are watching if you hit it over the right field wall you can hit it over like a brick building it basically goes into downtown oh so cool it's it's an awesome stadium um and then ogden utah um and not and it's not just yeah the stadium's okay it's a rookie ball stadium but it by far has the best view out of any ballpark i've ever seen just these big booming mountains uh panoramic view from the left field wall to the right field wall i'll show you a picture after this but it's really cool and i think shelby cravens will agree with that mindset that uh because she worked there for like six years yeah. So it is the nicest view that and Salt Lake Salt Lake City has a very similar view, right? Uh, but it's a little bit of a bigger stadium. It's a little bit more narrow of a view. This is just so expansive and panoramic. Uh, but those are my top three minor league stadiums, top three big league parks. Um, it's tough because obviously the historic ballparks are not the nice ballparks because there's you know not as many gadgets and and stuff with it, but I mean, for me, going to a ballpark, I want tradition, I want fanfare, and I want people who are loud. I mean, I want a more intimate atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And these big ballparks are more expansive. So as a broadcaster, I want an intimate you know, experience because the crowd noise is louder, and it sounds better, and you can hear the crack of the bat more. Uh, but also, I just think that the emotion of the game in baseball is more intimate. So, um, you know, Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, Yankee Stadium, Dodger Stadium are my four favorites of the new ballparks. Um AT&T Park or Oracle Stadium, you know, San Francisco mm -hmm. Giants. Just, you know, McCovey Coves, really cool. You know, it's right in downtown Soma, you know, south of Market Street in San Francisco. You could walk to a bunch of places. You could feel the history there with Willie Mays and Barry Bonds. And obviously they won their World Series in 2010, 2012, and 2014. You can feel that there once you go into that ballpark. Um, and especially when you're sitting above in like the 300 level. Um, just being able to see the water in the background, like it's really cool. So, right. Of the new stadiums, probably that one. Hate to say it, you know, for you know people who hate the Cardinals, Bush Stadium's really cool. Um, so when I was driving cross country, I was driving from Bowling Green, Kentucky to California, and I left on a Friday, and I was driving. I was about like ninety miles away from St. Louis when I got in the car Saturday morning. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna look at the Cardinals schedule, and uh, and see if they have a game. 10.30 in the morning, they had a game at 105. So I'm like, let's just see how much tickets are. I bought a ticket for the 300 level right behind home plate or the top level for $8. Wow. And I'm just sitting there drinking a beer, feet, you know, just perched up on the seat in front of me, looking at baseball. It was like the Brewers and the Cardinals, and the Brewers weren't very good that year. Um, and, yeah, just, like, looking over and seeing Ballpark Village and the Arch. Like, that's a, that's a great stadium, so... Um, those are probably two that stick out to me. My dad loves Camden Yards. I like it. I think it's a little, uh, when I saw it first in 2004, it was a lot better than when I saw it in 2011. So I think they need to make some upgrades to the ballpark. So, but when I initially saw Camden Yards, um, I liked it a lot. I also really like Coors Field. So I like Coors Field as well. Shelby has a recurring role in this podcast, apparently. Yeah. She's out there now. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big Coors Field fan. Um, You've been to Twins? Uh, I have not. So I have Target not, Field? I have not been to Target. I have not been to Petco. And I have not been to PNC in Pittsburgh. Okay, yeah, those are my three. So those are my three that I have not been to. And it's kind of, 
You know what? As somebody who's been to 23 of the 30, and I'm three and a half hours away from Target, and I've been here for three and a half years, and I haven't been to it, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed in myself with that. I don't know anybody that I know that likes baseball that either hasn't been or doesn't want to go to Pittsburgh. Because just this, the vision you see on TV it's is, incredible. is incredible. It's incredible. Uh, Target Field, I'm a huge fan of. Okay. It's it's nothing overwhelming. It's kind of simple, but it's really odd. See, but I, and, and I told you this. like I like simple. Like I don't like these expansive, like huge you know, stadiums that could easily just be like convention, outdoor convention centers. Right. Like, they did that with the, the 49ers stadium in Santa Clara. Like, it's nice. It's expansive, but it feels like a convention center. Mm-hmm. Like, Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis yep. feels like a convention center. Like, I want intimate. I want simple. I want baseball. And it, I feel like that's what you're saying Target Field is like, yep. which I would be really excited to go. Another stadium that's like that that I like, it's a little bit older, Kaufman's like that. Yep. Like, Kaufman is just like a minor league baseball stadium with more seats. Right. And I like that. Like, I like that you're right on top of the action. Mm-hmm. I like that it's like a narrow base. I know I like the fountain in center field. It reminds me of minor league stuff. So, I like Kaufman a lot. Yep. Uh, minor league, you never got to go to Albuquerque, right? Never got to go to Albuquerque. Never got to go to the old or the new Las Vegas. I guess I'm glad I never got to go to the old one. I'm sad I didn't get to go to the new one. Uh-huh. Uh, never been to El Paso. And I've been to Salt Lake as a fan. Okay. Albuquerque... Kind of has a Salt Lake view. The mountains are farther away, but okay. it's it's one of my favorites, so unfortunately. I heard. Yeah. Uh, another one that I'm going to go to in July, the one in Charlotte looks pretty amazing. Looks incredible. So I love downtown ballparks. Like, uh, I love having the you know the city skyline in the background, like like what PNC has, and, um, and, and yeah, like Fort Wayne has, and uh, I would be excited to see that. They have a really cool media relations director. His name is Tommy Viola. I used to work with him. Good guy. Fort Wayne? No, Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte. Okay, yeah. excellent. Um, going to Durham while I'm down there, too. So Nice. You know, get your Crash Davis shirt. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> See the bull. I'm very yeah. psyched about that. Uh, okay, let's turn the tables. Sure. I've had some... I've been to some not-so-great parks. Okay. You know, Stadium Journey. We're all over the place. What... Where have you been? And you're just like, what, oh, this what is, is this? Easy. This is and easy. I, think and I, I know. I don't want to crap on people. Uh, and they're well. I'll take the because they're no longer in affiliated baseball. Mobile's tough. Uh, Hank Aaron Stadium, and it should be great. But every time we went down there, the field didn't drain well. We were just rained out all the time, all the time. Um, yeah, pre- it was just an old stadium. Everything felt damp, um, and we just never had a good experience there. Good people. And when the weather was nice, which was on a very rare occasion, they actually brought some fans, but it just was never nice. And the field didn't drain, so when there was any sort of rain shower, you were were rained out. So Um, that's one that sticks out to me. Um, So my my years in Huntsville was at Joe Davis Stadium. Uh, But Joe has a special place in my heart. But I think if you ask any Southern League broadcaster what their least favorite stadium was, they would say the Joe. So it's not like it had like a downtown view. It's you know an older stadium, nineteen eighties, um, completely run down. Uh, good field surface, but that was really about it. And then um, in the Midwest League, I just didn't have a great experience in Clinton. I don't think it's that bad of like when I got in the Midwest League, people were like, "You're not going to like Clinton." Why am I not going to like Clinton? It's not a nice stadium. I didn't really get that vibe. Um, but just like the visiting press box isn't great. Um, we never had good weather there. I was there twice. 
It always rained. It was always muggy. There weren't any people there. Um, but then it would be like after I left Clinton, I would see pictures from Clinton. It's like 76 degrees and beautiful. And there's a bunch of people there. Yeah. It just, the, the stars did not align for me to like Clinton. I loved Burlington. I loved Davenport. Although it felt like a little bit of an amusement park in like left field and right field in right. Davenport. Yeah. Um, I loved Cedar Rapids. I just never had that experience in Clinton. Um, but people had better experiences in Clinton than I have. Um, and then the Beloit Old Stadium, just because you had to share a press box with everyone else that was in there. Like, you know, or share, like, you didn't have like a, a radio booth. It was just like one long press box. So when they're having a discussion, yeah, you can hear it in your crowd mic. Right. And then just like the metal bleachers, so cold. Um, when we went there twice, we went there once in April, once in May, and I think like the average temperature was 37 degrees at, at first pitch, which means it was like 25 degrees by the end of the day. And I just, I, by the eighth inning, I couldn't feel my face. So I'm sure I would have liked it better if I, if, if I was there during the summer. Uh, but during the winter, man, oh, it was freezing. I'm really happy Boyd's getting a new stadium. Yeah. I, we tried to go there once we got box seats and they're, did you see the box seats when I did. you were there? They yeah. look like booster seats the kids would have. Correct. It was. I don't know. I don't know how that all went. Yeah. Down. The people thought it was a good idea, but uh, the people were cool. They're fine, and um, and, that, and that's the thing. Like, you know, they they these stadiums have redeeming qualities. It just really depends on your experience there, whether it's a rainout or a crappy game or bad weather or cold weather or you know bad parking or something. Um, I, I think that each stadium has a redeeming quality, but just, you know, when I went to Mobile, it was never good weather. Ever. I mean, for two years. We mm-hmm. played them 15 times. I'm pretty sure that we were delayed, at least delayed, in 12 of those 15 games. Wow. So it's all based on circumstance. Right. So The other one that comes to my mind, and, and I'm like you, I can find good in any baseball stadium because yeah. there's baseball being played, but in 2006... 2006, 2007, I spent a summer in Boise. and Boise Hawks? Boise Hawks. And it was great for me. I'm a Cubs fan. It was a Cubs affiliate. I got to see Josh Donaldson fresh out of college. Yeah. Um, out of Auburn when he was a catcher. Out of Auburn when he was a catcher. Not a great catcher. No. Um, Which is why now he's a gold glove third base. But every single night, that guy was the best player on the field. Yeah. Even if he wasn't a great catcher, you could just tell how he carried himself. Yeah, you knew that he was going to be a big leaguer. Right. Yeah. Uh, about five, six games left in the season, Josh Vitter showed up as the top draft pick. Yeah. And that didn't pan out, unfortunately. But that part was just... It, it, people think Boise's up in the mountains and all, which it is, but summer is so damn hot. Yeah. And they had the right field. They have these metal bleachers with no trees or no nothing. So you have to bring, like, six inches of padding or you're going to burn your legs off oh, when you geez. sit in the bleachers. And uh, it was awful. I mean, I feel bad that they're not affiliated anymore either, yeah. but they've been pushing for a new stadium forever in Boise and they people are resistant to it. So. It's a great city. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, absolutely. It's, a, it's a great city yep. for baseball. Um, I got one more stadium that I remember. Um, great Falls Voyagers, rookie league affiliate for the White Sox in Great Falls, Montana. Um, the reason is, and I'll show you a picture after this. I'll, I might have to show it to you tomorrow. i got to find it. Their visiting press box is tiny. I could barely fit in there. So and then you have to basically there was this wood shed that was that served as like their window and you would have to like lift it up and the woodshed had all these inscriptions. It was like Shawshank Redemption in there. <laughs> nice. Awesome. It was, it was like Tom was here. 
That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, we're about to wrap this thing up. Cool. We've been chatting for a bit. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you before, but I forgot, so we'll throw Good. it now. Um, life of a minor league broadcaster. What is the hardest part of the job that nobody knows that you do? Um, at this level, team travel. So I guess this was before like 2019, before we were busting the majority of the places it is, you know, in the Pacific coast league, you have a seven o'clock PM game in, let's just go round rock for instance. And then you finish that game. The next day you have a seven Oh eight PM game in Des Moines. You basically have to get done, leave the ballpark, pack up everything, call the bus driver, make sure they're ready to pick you up. They pick you up at 3 o'clock in the morning because you have to take a 5 o'clock flight that connects. I don't take that bus. I take a rental car down to the airport, make sure that we have our own dedicated line, that we have 35 boarding passes, that we have 35 bag tags. By the time that gets there, the team gets there to help facilitate the process, and then a player ultimately forgets his bag or his ID, and you have to go through that. But, you know, getting down to the hotel at 2.30 in the morning after you're done a game at 11.30 p.m., you obviously don't sleep. You make sure that everybody goes through security. You go through security. You take two flights. You get back to Des Moines at noon. You drop up your stuff at, the, at your apartment or your house. You take a shower. You don't nap. You drive down to the ballpark. You fill out your scorebook. You lay down in your booth for 20 minutes. You get the lineup card. You do some more stuff. You do a pregame interview. You call the game. You're out at 11.30 at night. You're essentially up for 48 straight hours. Mm -hmm. And then you go home and you pass out. That's difficult. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right. So before we wrap this, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up House Hunters. Oh, yay. Uh, you and your better half, Tessa, were on there, what, a couple months ago? Yeah. It was uh, March 29th. I think. Yeah. So something like that. Yeah. So tell how, me, how did how that work? How did it happen? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, so, you know, obviously the pandemic people were, were looking for more space and, um, you know, Tessa got here on, on March 15th of 2020. Um, we ended up fostering a dog, which, uh, very shortly after came, you know, turned into adopting a dog. You know, the moment he licked my face and, you know, gave me a hug, I'm like, we're you got to keep them, obviously. Yeah. So we went from a one-bedroom apartment to a two-bedroom apartment to, you know, wanting to buy a house. Um, obviously, in this area, you know, Tessa's from San Francisco or from California originally, but lives in San Francisco. I'm from Philadelphia. You know, housing prices out here are a lot cheaper than those areas. So obviously, the, the money goes a little bit farther out here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Tessa woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning one Saturday morning and said, hey, like, I'm going to apply for us to be on HGTV. I said, you know, my famous last words, go for it. I don't care. Nothing's going to happen. Well, two weeks later, we interview. You know, two months later, we're filming. And six months later, I'm getting destroyed on social media. That's how it happened. I saw the social media backlash. I don't really understand it. Yeah, I, no, um, it was basically like, dude, you're from Iowa. Like, you live in Iowa and you have this beautiful girl from California and you're trying to, like, get your house like she should be able to get whatever she wants which i get and i am very very happy that i got the backlash and she didn't yeah because if it were the other way around ain't a happy life happy wife happy life right you know, it's, yep. but no nah, i mean i get it she's much better looking than i am i'm well aware i have eyes i can see so yeah this beautiful woman moving from california and you know moving to iowa for this bozo you know it's and, and i get it it was all in fun we had a good time with it but 
Yeah, I mean, it just kind of took a life of its own. Like, And there's people who live and die by watching new episodes of House Hunters and then tweeting about it. Like, there is, like, a cult when it comes to that. And wow. We learned that, uh, we learned that March 29th, yeah. Well, another thing you got destroyed for on social media, yeah. and I can't remember what the hell you were cutting, but you were cutting something. Oh, I was cutting a lemon. Okay, and what exactly did you do wrong? Because I remember watching it, but I was on the phone at the time, and I still don't understand. I mean, I just butchered it. I, I uh, Some people, like, stabbed the knife and then cut. I was just trying to, like, straight cut. I didn't have the right knife. Well, first of all, it wasn't my knife because um, we were already, like, in the process of packing up our house because we knew that we were going to move. We wanted to get a head start on it. And, um, yeah, like, it wasn't my knife. Um and we were making a drink, and like apparently I just had the wrong technique of cutting a lemon. Looked like I was going to cut my finger off. Uh, newsflash, I didn't. Fingers are still in Yeah, you got all so 10, good. so yeah. that's great. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. I, did, I did not know that was a thing. Um, yeah, we have a gif of it and everything. We'll have Justin Walter send you the gif of me butchering a, a lemon cutting. All right. so. Well, I'm self-conscious about that stuff now. And so I know. Well, what I'm we're like... going to try to do during our Marquee Sports Network broadcast at the end of the year, we're gonna I'm going to have an, a date with my nemesis. We're going to bring a knife, we're going to bring a lemon, and I'm going to cut it on regional sports network television, which could be a great workers' comp lawsuit. But Excellent. Yeah. I, I, cannot, I absolutely cannot wait for that. Yeah. All right. Well, look, Alex. We've been. We'll wrap it. Uh, thanks for hopping on. That was fun. This was great. Yeah. Um, maybe do a round two next year or something. You know where um, I sit. I do know where you sit. Uh, all right, everybody. So for Alex, this is James, and thanks for listening. <laughs>